1: is Knox Shelton, and I'm the executive director of Indie Memphis. Been working in the Memphis area now for almost about 10 years in the nonprofit landscape, serving our um, community. Um, and one thing that I'm just really, really excited about is our upcoming Indie Memphis Film Festival, which is uh, going to be taking place on October 20th. So we're just a, a few weeks away from that start date.
2: Um, And I am Miriam Bale. I'm the artistic director of Indie Memphis and the Indie Memphis Film Festival. What might you know me for? Um, You might know me for an article I wrote some years ago on the genre called persona swap movies, Um, like Persona, the film by Bergman and other films. and what I'm working on now is um, I'm working on the same as Knox, the Indian Memphis Film Festival, also working on, you're the first to hear it, listeners, uh, a podcast that I can't say anything more about now, but stay tuned for more on that.
0: Knox Shelton, Miriam Bell, welcome to the Make It podcast. Happy to be here.
2: Thank you, Christopher. We're happy to be here.
0: I'm excited about this podcast. I think you are a perfect person to have a podcast and I'm not just blowing smoke and brown nosing because you're a guest on the podcast. You really have a lot to say. You're an incredible follow on Twitter and you humble me for sure in terms of your cinema knowledge and knowledge around film in general. Uh this is a great idea. Do you have a name for it yet
2: i, I really it I, just a teaser what I told you is a teaser and um and it won't just be me but we'll tell you more about it. You'll be the first to you'll be the first to hear um so'll have to keep it keep it hush hush at this point, but I think we'll be able to announce something by the end of the year.
0: Are you gonna have guests on this podcast
2: <laughs> probably. Are you asking for a spot?
0: <laughs> well, you heard it here first. It's another exclusive. Uh, I I lay on the <laughs> altar of Miriam Bell's podcast. I would love to come on as a guest if it's appropriate. Um
2: okay. no, no More to be determined. Yeah, just,
0: just putting just putting that thought in your head, a little breadcrumb that leads you right back to me.
2: Uh, <laughs> Appreciate the chat spot. That's you got to have it. You got to have that.
0: Uh, I'd love to start with 2021. Uh, We are just weeks away from the Indie Memphis Film Festival. It starts on October 20th, runs through the 25th. And we're going to talk a lot about that festival today. But this year has gone by, in my estimation, my feeling, my opinion, so fast. And I was wondering from both of your perspectives and Knox, we can start with you. What do you think will define 2021?
1: Really good question. Um, you know, I would say, and, and you mentioned it, how fast this year has gone by, I certainly, uh, want to echo that and feel it. Um, you know, I've been in this position now for five months, um, which it would have been towards the the beginning, um, start of the year, and it certainly feels like, uh, feels incredible that we are just a few weeks away from the festival. You know, if I had to say what will define this year, um, oh man, that's, that's a really, um, you know, I think it's been, you know, I think especially towards, beginning of summer, the end of spring, you know, we all started to feel a lot of optimism and I think probably started to rush ourselves back into, you know, um, life as we knew it before COVID. And we didn't really take the time to, um, you know, properly evaluate um, or properly really put together, you know, the fact that we're really understand the notion that we can't just go back. Uh, There is no Mm -hmm. back to normal. And so, you know, for me, it's just really still trying to strike that balance of how we get back in the swing of things Um, and planning a festival has certainly raised that question um, for me um, over these past few months.
0: Miriam, what do you think?
2: I mean, I definitely agree with, with Knox, it's been quite a year. It's been quite, um, in film terms, sort of a narrative, you know, it's this moving towards back to normal and this excitement of June, July, uh, May, June, July, you know, getting a lot of people getting vaccinated and ready to go, as Knox just said, back to normal, and then realizing something was up. And that wasn't the narrative that was happening and that we were not quite going backtrack, but that it was this unknown territory, you know, not a full circle back. And um, so it's been a big lesson for us as an organization. And I think for everyone. Um, And I think what we've really learned is, you know, last year was a big, challenged uh, 2020 obviously from a festival i mean for everyone but from a festival organization point of view it was a huge challenge but in some ways it was a lot simpler we it was you know everything was kind of really bad <laughs> it was really bad but you knew the parameters you knew the you knew um what you could and couldn't do and and you kind of could work around that this year has been so changeable and sort of um amorphous at times and one thing we've really had to learn from that and really um, emphasize all our skills in is flexibility so i think um so i think flexibility is a big is 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 what i would say is a big lesson and not just flexibility in terms of um you know another big sort of catch word this year and the lesson from everything we've learned last year is accessibility, like, and um, that's definitely something that's been big on our mind is accessibility in terms of, um, you know, um, compared to disability, uh, accessibility for all, but also just in terms of just absolutely everyone. Um, For us in particular, accessibility to art house films, to becoming a filmmaker, and to seeing films, and I think that that and and I think that that's about flexibility. That's really what we've thought about in terms of the festival this year. Is well, everyone might be at a different comfort level. Everyone might be at a different just physical accessibility level, um, financial accessibility level. How can we give every single person we can imagine all of our our audiences, our our vast um, audiences, a great experience. Give them the films that they need, the films that they want, the films that they didn't know that they need and want, and um, kind of add to their their expansion as a person. And so we've really learned to do that. There's this year, I think that the festival There is something for everyone. And we really, that's been our sort of motivating goal this year. So I think, um, again, I'd say flexibility.
0: Yeah, I like the answer of flexibility and accessibility as a combo because they're broad sort of in their definition and a lot of things fall under it. One of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the festivals, and you guys are going to be in-person and virtual this year. The festivals that have done that so far, they've all sort of required vaccination. They're, are you know, proof of vaccination. They're doing the best they can to social distance, keep everyone safe as possible as a means to, like you said, sort of fall in the middle of everyone's comfort zone around uh, accessibility. And then also how flexible are they willing to be to come off one way or the other Uh, their ideology that they sort of live by. And it, it, it occurred to me that the Delta variant seems to sort of disrupt schools and eight to five jobs, but not college and pro football (laughs) and not other sports where crowds gather. So if someone asked you how are theaters and film festivals different than stadiums, how would each of you respond to that? Do you have a, a thought on that, Miriam?
2: Well, I think, first of all, you're just looking at, you know, indoors and in smaller spaces. I think it's just pretty straightforward. You know, I think that um, from what we know about, um, I'm no health expert, but when you're looking at things that are, I think that what you have to be careful of is mm-hmm. smaller spaces. So we've made a real effort to have um, bigger spaces, uh, larger venues and and not use some of our smaller venues and yeah, have all of these precautions. I think that, um, when we talk about flexibility, I think we're talking about, um, you know, not a middle ground, but something for everyone, you know, and that Mm -hmm. includes people who are really cautious. And so we want to make sure that they have a safe space or people who are extremely cautious, and don't feel comfortable going out with any groups of people, any indoor spaces, they can see things at our drive-in or at home. So I think we have, um, yeah, I mean, I I think that, um, I think we're just, I think in answer to your question, we're just, you know, we're not, we're not in a stadium. We're not showing films in a stadium, unfortunately. No, we don't have, uh, yeah, we don't have uh, foreign films and a, in a, in a, in an amphitheater yet, maybe someday.
0: Oh, for sure. And, and Knox, the, uh, well, before I get to that, maybe you wanted to respond to that as well. I, I don't know.
1: No, I mean, I think I would just, uh, certainly the outdoor component, um, for sure. And then, I, I mean, one thing I would say to, um, you know, not every, um, our organization has responded in the same way. And I think we're all still just, you know, trying to figure out how we all um, need to be operating right now. And, and for some, you know, um, we're very fortunate that we've um, been able to have the flexibility that we can have. Um, we're very fortunate to have partners and, you know, I think of, you um, working with Eventive, you know, who helps us take all of our films virtually, you know, we are very fortunate to have that opportunity and flexibility um, to do the programming that we've been able to do and will do.
0: Exactly. There is this dichotomy. I was at Defy Film Festival, which is an alt film festival here in Nashville that happens every year, small festival. But they had the similar, they had a very similar approach, which is, okay, for those who can't come or don't want to come in person, here's some virtual access for those who want to come proof of vaccination, and we'll we'll have some other protective measures around. And one of the issues they had were with the vendors that they would normally have to service the attendees. And as it turns out, with the attendees, they're just preaching to the choir, right? Like these are the people who already support them. They are going to come regardless, and, and they're sort of with the agenda. Whereas the vendors w- were not. And I wonder if that, if it feels like to you guys that plays out, not just at in Indy Memphis, but throughout the country where the business owners, tend to be people who don't want to show proof of vaccination or, or don't want uh, to sort of aren't politically aligned. And it's unfortunate that's political at all because it's a health issue, but make it political by saying, nah, you, you can't force me to do that. And if you do, then I'm just not going to show it with my food truck or something.
1: But certainly, I, I can't speak to um, other organizations. I can say that we've been very fortunate that all of our not just their individual supporters, but our corporate sponsors, that, the businesses that work with us and really, um, you know, foundations, um, I think of, you know, our presenting sponsor for the festival, Duncan Williams, have been very receptive and um, just sort of uh, okay with everything that we've been trying to do to try and implement the best or I wouldn't maybe say the best, but from from what we can do. Um you know t- to try and put protocols and processes in place to keep everyone as healthy and safe as we can. um we've been very fortunate that um have had no issues there, and all of the conversations have been quite frankly very easy um, so very thankful that's, for that. That's wonderful.
0: Miriam, did you have any thoughts on that? No. No. I thought it was a. It was a <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I thought it was a complete uh, answer there by, by Knox. I, this question is for you, though, uh, Miriam, because we are about three weeks away from Indy Memphis, and I've always, it's mostly a curiosity of mine, but maybe it'll be entertaining to the audience as well and to the listeners. What happens in the last three weeks from an artistic director POV? Like, what is left to accomplish? to make sure that Indie Memphis happens the way it's supposed to happen when all the films are already selected?
2: Okay. Well, in a normal year, um, we also do something, well, I won't say normal, there's no normal, but um, pre-COVID, what we would do is, um, uh, this is actually the time when, um, well, obviously we're, Making sure that we have the um, the print, we making sure that we have the film, and uh, making fine tuning the filmmakers' schedule when they're arriving. All of this kind of thing. Um, what we do at Indie Memphis, though, is we organize something called the Black Creators Forum, and oh, cool. that happens just before the film festival. So this is so you know this is when we're also fine tuning the Black Creators Forum, which is a lot of um, panels and events. We are also uh, making final arrangements on our indie talks, which are our all festival panels. Um, uh, but I will say that since COVID, since last year, these three weeks before the festival is actually when we are at our absolute busiest because we are pre-recording a lot of Q&As as well. Then them oh, sh- to be able to go online, so yeah. we discovered last year that what used to be a momentary lull before we get busy again after we announce the schedule is actually our busiest time of all. So um, yeah, so it's a uh, so uh, it's a it's a lot of a lot of talking, a lot of talking and arranging talking. Um, uh, but I'm sure other festivals are are. I'm sure it's, it varies depending on the festival.
0: You'll breathe on October 26th,
2: right? Um, 29th, maybe <laughs> <laughs> we have our, our awards on the 26th and then there's a lot to follow up on. So yeah, oh, I'll it. take a breath on the, probably the 28th or 29th.
0: Okay. Got it. And are, are the awards open to the general public?
2: Well, we're doing them virtually this year. So they are open in that they can stream them when we do them. And we'll be announcing those times and and where to do that soon. So yeah, it should be, our awards have been really, really fun. And they were last year. A good thing about, again, the virtual virtual hybrid uh, festival is that we had a lot more participation internationally in our awards last year, which was so much fun.
0: Yeah. That is so critical to open it up to everyone because the one thing that the web does or virtual does is it goes broad a lot better. I think festivals in person are much deeper. You can go deeper. So if I was at a festival and met you in Knox and we could really get to know each other quite well, I could take you out for cocktails and dinner grades, like nice networking, but virtually I could just throw my contact information in a virtual chat and 30 people could have it at one time. So the scale of it is strong. And I don't understand these festivals that have a virtual component to their festival and then sort of block international. They don't allow the films. Can you illuminate me on that? Are films not allowed to be seen in every region? Is there something I'm missing here? Because there are festivals that just don't block, they don't allow everyone to watch the films across the nation even.
2: Oh yeah, that is um, yeah. I can illuminate that. That 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 has to do with um, that has to do with um, uh, the distributors. It's not up to the festivals. It's because it's a sort sort of normally when you distribute a film, you have it in certain national rights. You have North mm-hmm. American rights or U.S. rights or um, you know, UK or whatever it is. So, um, so that still happens. So when you're streaming, um, it's in this theatrical window. So you only can, um, depending on, so you can only just, uh, stream it based on, um, on, on it, that's all up to the, the distributor often. So with the, with the, films that don't have distribution yet or don't have arrangements for distribution in other territories, um, they can sometimes make them available widely. So we have, I think all of our shorts are available internationally, but most of our features are available US only and a large part of our feature and some of our features are just sort of regional.
0: The Nashville Film Festival is limiting their films to basically six states.
2: Oh well, and that's just, that's a I, large I region, actually. It. No, that's that's a large region, actually. That's um that's a southern region. We're doing it. Uh, it's that's basically
0: southeast. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's that's based on. Yeah, that's um that's 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 not that's that's pretty standard.
0: Right, right. But I didn't know what the rule was but if it's the distributor saying hey let's just limit this to this region i mean that kind of makes sense to me (laughs) a little bit only because i know that for our films it's like okay there's u.s rights and then we go outside of the u.s but never state by state rights but i suppose the distributor still has the right to say hey let's limit this to these areas right
2: it also means that um, yeah, it also means when it comes to regions, it's also giving space to other festivals. Normally, when a festival would play, when a film uh. would play a festival, you're just going to see it in that region. So if everyone can see it at um, one festival, at let's say the Nashville Film Festival, then it means when it comes to um, uh, Montana or the Seattle Film Festival. People there would have already been able to see it, so it's not a perfect system. But they're trying to make a system that's <laughs> fair for the film and fair for different regional festivals. Um, but there's no, there's no, there's no hard rules. I think it's what we're finding is it's a little bit of a wild west with these kind of things.
0: Right. It puts stress on the filmmaker because a lot of times one of the criteria for being accepted is that. It's sort of the world premiere of their movie, quote unquote, Uh, even though there's really no way to police or audit whether it is or isn't outside of the fact of maybe the honor system and whether or not they've seen the film at another festival uh, already and can prove, hey, no, this isn't the first festival this has come to. Well, Uh, that's
2: a that's a good example of why they have these regions, because let's say you decided you were going to be festival the Zanzibar film festival was going to be your world premiere and mm-hmm. you decided to, um, and, um, or no, let's say that's not a good example. Let's say you were going to do a film festival in Milwaukee. it was going to be your world premiere. And then, um, you also gave rights in North America and the U S and, and let's say that somebody in the entire world could see it when your film premiered, then, you can't really have um, um, a, a European premiere or a, or a, um, you know, another, uh, an African premiere. You can't really have those other things because it's been available on the first screening. It's been available in all territories. Does that make sense?
0: It makes a ton of sense, and I appreciate you clearing that up for me. Uh, it's what I assumed, but it's good to hear from you and know that okay got it that's that's what's going on um with with those those choices in terms of criteria for making indie memphis i know that you're on the record saying that films that uh, treat women shitty (laughs) are harder to get in uh where the where the characters uh the female characters aren't treated well Uh, what other criteria do you go by to select your films for indie memphis and is there a scenario where a story could be sort of the thematic purpose of it is for women to be sort of treated poorly throughout the story and maybe redeemed at the end somehow? Okay. uh, So a couple of, there was like a, that was like a two-parter.
2: Yeah, or three-parter. Well, first of all, first of all, I'll clarify. It's not that, we, it's not that we're not into film. We won't let in films where women are treated shitty. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's that's the rule. Um, I think that in that, I think you're re- re- referring to a conversation about. Um, so we are uh, an all women uh, selection, an all women programming team, and mm-hmm. um, but we don't have hard and fast rules about. Um, you know, a certain number of women directors or, um, a certain context or, you know, um, a film where you're going to see a strong, inspiring woman. definitely no rules like that. We all like kind of like, you know, messy, interesting, sometimes dark films. So definitely Mm -hmm. a woman could be treated shitty in one of our films, but what we're really looking for is, um, is the point of view we're, but what we're not interested in is a is a like a sexist point of view from the director which is really subtle it's kind of hard to name but where women aren't real characters they're not showing any kind of um, where they're just sort of um, symbols or they're you know just like objects of desire or yeah. they have no they have no autonomy they have nothing re- interesting or recognizable those kind of films are films that we'll tend to avoid, and it's a really subtle thing. But absolutely, we don't have hard and fast rules about um, about you know like like characters or having like uplifting stories or anything like that. But we definitely are looking at the point of view, um, and we're looking at. Um, at at all of the characters to be, you know, human and complex and interesting. Mm-hmm. And um and that goes for women, that goes for um you know, that goes for uh characters of different races and sexualities and abilities and all of those things. You know, we're not looking for symbols in terms of those 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 um those those kind of characters.
0: Very very good. In most festivals, Knox, it would just be a bunch of people that, frankly, and please take this the right way, as, look like you and are like you. And at Indie Memphis, you're kind of the odd one out a little bit, it seems like. So I know you've been in Memphis for 10 years, but what uh, what is it about Memphis that... Um, made you promise your mom at age six that you'd that you'd move here as an adult and and what made you tie in to indie film and filmmaking, considering your background in in language arts and and linguistics and literature?
1: Yeah, I think really for me, um, one of the things that meant the most for me about indie Memphis, you know, outside of just having a love for film and cinema, is kind of what you're tapping into a little bit at the beginning part of your question is sort of what drives us as an organization um you know prior to this job I, i was working um within literacy and for me that role was really important because it was all about trying to um I mean, the way I, the way I tried to frame it or the way I, I really saw that work was trying to provide the metaphorical megaphone mm-hmm. um, to some of our most urgent voices and necessary voices in our community. And I see work at Indie Memphis being so similar. Um, and for me, you know, I'm very fortunate to work alongside Miriam and, and work alongside our, our new programmer, Kayla Myers, and really just trying to make sure that we're, you know, again, trying to provide that metaphorical megaphone so that we can hear perspectives, hear stories from some of our most urgent and important voices in art and far too often, unfortunately, at film festivals and film organizations across the country, there isn't enough of a focus on that as there should be. And, You know, we are a minority-majority city in Memphis. And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, it's not even just a matter of representation of our city, but it's also about what is necessary and important uh, for our art landscape to be really hearing um, from filmmakers of color, filmmakers, of, you know, women filmmakers, LGBTQ filmmakers, you know, I think that's really, really important for us.
0: Yeah. And you guys knocked that out of the park and differentiate yourself so well. It's, it's very impressive. Um, I know that you're a fan Miriam of Sarah Driver and a lot of her films are unheralded and you've tried to put a spotlight on her in the past uh, and as well as as many others, but Sort of in your path, you've probably run into quite a few indie filmmakers and you've seen, I would guess, thousands of movies. Now, you can tell me if I'm wrong about that. but
2: Definitely thousands, at least. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, What sacrifices or risks do you look for in an indie filmmaker that let you know they're serious?
2: Oh, what an interesting question. Um, let's see. You know, I don't know if I look at it in terms of sacrifices. I mean, that's a really good question uh, because that's something that we're, I think, as a, as a film community, we're all wrestling with in terms of quality of life and, you know, um, uh, a lot of labor strikes um, impending right now. So I don't know if, I think there's been a long time where, you know, you like, uh, that that's how you paid your dues was a lot of sacrifices and a lot of giving up the rest of your life to like, for these goals. And I don't know if that's always a good judge of artistic ability or merit or value. And I mean, definitely you want to show someone I mean, I really think that it's primarily someone who thinks visually, thinks in terms of film, like really, right. it seems really basic, but it's a, I think a rare skill. Um, you often see, um, films that, um, you know, uh, that there can be someone who has, um, who is just like not, who has a good uh, script or a good idea, but they're not translating like emotions into movement. And that's, I mean, it sounds really basic, but that's really what I'm looking for someone who can tra- translate emotions into uh, movement, color contrast, sound, you know, all the things that are um, not in the dialogue. I don't know if I I just evaded your question, but (laughs) that would be my answer.
0: No, it was actually quite complete. And it's so much, here's what I will say, so much harder than uh, to do, than to to just say you're going to do it to actually translate an emotion either through music or film is a gift and 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 it's also a craft that like you can work on it you can polish it and figure out sort of hey that works people respond to that um let me touch that button again on my next thing that I do but but to just to do it out of the gate it's so very 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 difficult uh one thing I thought about uh in terms of Indie Memphis and this conversation, you had a tweet, such a large percentage, and and I'm talking to you, Miriam, such a large percentage of music documentaries are directed by white people and about black people. And I'm curious, is this a condition of black music being so influential or black filmmakers being boxed out?
2: I mean, it's both. But when it comes to um, when it comes to music documentaries, I think a lot of it is access. It's really, really access um, uh, access to these uh, musicians, access to equipment and access to like song rights, all of these kind of things. Um, it's it's a it's something you know I, um, when I started working at Indie Memphis, one thing I was really excited about was the strong emphasis on music, on music before the films, on this music category we have called sounds. It's a huge part of the festival and has been for a long time for obvious reasons because, um, because of music in Memphis. And um, that was my background actually before I worked in film, I worked in music. So it's like a personal love of me and it's like cat- of mine and it's a category that like you know, I like really watch all of the films myself and, um, and, uh, and it comes up every year. It's like, you know, we have a lot, you know, we aim for diversity in all of our categories and it's always tough in our sounds category because we'll get a lot of black subjects, but not a lot of women directors and not a lot of, um, not a lot of black directors and certainly not a lot of black women directors. And um, yet yeah, the subjects are all of those are are often majority black. So it, it just like this problem of access really is emphasized in this category. Um, and every year I'm like, what needs to happen? I feel like we need to get someone to help fund this area in particular to give um, black uh, black filmmakers and women of color like access to or the ability to know that they could have access to um, uh, to make these films and um, with the ready-made audiences often. But this year I am really excited because we have a film by um, about a uh, a punk icon, Polly Styrene from X-Ray Specs that's made and she's um, half Somali. Nice. Um, she's a uh, Underknown, I mean, she's known for being a punk hero, but she's I think it's underknown her her African lineage and her connection to that. So it's a perfect fit for us, and um, it's made by her daughter, and also um, co-made with um, a a, a filmmaker of color, um, a man, and um, it's great. It's called um, Polystyrene. I'm a cliche, and um, and then we have a film. It is is the opposite of a film by a white male director uh, making a film about a black subject. It's a film about Kenny G. It's called listening to Kenny G by one of our favorite <laughs> <Indian> <laughs> filmmakers named Penny Lane, who last did a film about, um, about um, sort of a, uh, uh, Satanist, but in a really kind of comical way um, about their religion. Um, she's a great, great filmmaker. And so here we have a white filmmaker, a white woman filmmaker, making a film about the widest subject known to man, Kenny G. And it's really about his whiteness in a lot of ways. And it's also about um, what makes music good or bad. And it interviews all of these um, music, um, like experts who are a majority of white males and like talking about what, uh, what you know, talking about music snobbery. And it's just, to me, the perfect antidote to this problem that we come up upon every year in programming this section. And it's really one of my favorite films in the festival. Um, I mean, it's hard to have favorites. They're all favorites, but I really recommend that one. It's called Listening to Kenny G by, um, by Penny Lane.
0: I am writing the notes right now so I can make sure that I watch that at Indie Memphis. is going to be great. Listening to Kenny G. Okay, I've got it. knock uh, speaking of influences, why do you think it's so hard for us to admit as a culture that we are influenced by video games, music, and film? Isn't the point of video games, music, and film to make us feel something? Uh, it seems like we don't want to admit that it, that it actually works.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly changing, though, a little bit. Um, you know, I, I do think traditionally that is probably, it's been an unfortunately sort of politicized viewpoint that um, some of these mediums have um, influenced uh, youth in a very, uh, bad way. Um, but rather, uh, you know, I'm starting to get the sense and I mean, I am constantly uh, fascinated with video game streaming, something that uh, nothing that I'd like particularly watch and enjoy, but just understanding that that's like a growing component of um, something that younger um, generations are very interested in. I think, you know, um, younger generations are really starting to change that narrative. Um, And, you know, I think um, a lot of our um, filmmakers are really starting to drive the point home of film as a really um, artistic medium that can really influence and shape culture. Um, in a very positive and meaningful way. Um, And I mean, that's been happening now for for quite some time. But, um, you know, I think that's a really exciting opportunity and something that really intrigued me about the work at Indie Memphis is really continuing to drive that point home and really continuing to highlight the great work that does kind of happen within film and cinema, rather than focusing on uh, you know, Marvel and sort of the big uh, conglomerates that are starting to dominate um, the the film atmosphere.
0: Yeah, I just saw that Paramount is kind of done with anything that's not IP going forward. It's such a bold thing to put out into the zeitgeist, like, uh, sorry, screenwriters. So if you're writing on spec or if you have a narrative story, uh, we are out. Uh, So, yeah, I think you're right. But I also think you have to take the good with the bad. Uh, Sia is on record saying that she thinks all pop music is just indoctrination. And I thought that was such a bold thing for a pop artist of her stature to actually say out loud and put on the record. And it's probably true. Uh, We love to hear that our film touched someone, but we hate to hear that our film caused someone to go kill someone else. Right depending on the person and how they take it you know both both things are possible and you can't you can't have one without the other. You can't decide that you're going to make a film that impacts people and not live with sort of the bad that comes with it. I just feel like we have a hard time admitting it, especially when something bad happens and our work is sort of cited as the impetus not the impetus the uh, catalyst sorry uh, of that action
2: Well I have really. I heavily disagree. I heavily disagree with what you're saying. I, I don't think films Go are going to- Go for it, you're allowed to, to disagree with me. I don't think films are gonna ever like influence someone to kill someone. I mean, I think that it, what you're talking about is, um, um, no, I just don't, I, I, I disagree. This is not something that, that, that films are doing, but what films, there are films that can be, propaganda. Um, Films Mm -hmm. can be um, propaganda in different ways, Um, but what the job of a film festival is, is through creation, um, finding films that are not propaganda in any way. Um, And my propaganda, I mean, for all kinds of things. It could be for sort of jingoism, it could be for um uh corporate loyalty it could be for all of these things and what um the job of a film festival like ours is is to find films that are complex that as i answered about women that are showing um all characters as people and you know there's a lot of um there's a lot of subtlety and complexity and those films aren't They're not—they're not after uh, one certain message, and those are exactly the films that we're looking for. And the films that are act as propaganda are films that, you know, were are 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 the kind of things we we would never play.
0: Yeah, I've spent my life defending video games, saying that no, a video game doesn't make anyone do anything. And, uh, you know, a person that does something is looking to be a blame, that does something and bases it on that is looking to be a blame shifter instead of a blame absorber to a degree. Of course, there are also people who have mental health issues, and we have to sort of make a space for that reality as as well. But the defense to that is so strong by people like me in the past. That's like, no, video games don't make you feel anything. And I've just... I've backed off of that stance a little bit to say, no, it makes you feel something or it wouldn't be effective. It wouldn't be fun to play.
2: Wait, why are you asking us about video games? I don't know anything about video games. No, no, I'm not
0: asking. I'm making a a comparison just to media in general. So music, movies, video games, which are the primary, sorry, let me clarify, which are the primary mediums consumed today. Uh, And their effect on people Because I, I guess what I'm saying is I agree with what you just said, but I've backed off such a strong stance of saying, no, media doesn't make, uh, or doesn't affect anyone's behavior ever.
2: Wait, but I've backed off
0: that a little, I've backed off that a little bit on both on film, music, and video games. Whereas in the past, I was a very strong defender of saying, hey, those things are just entertainment. We learn a lesson from them sometimes. We we enjoy them, we absorb them, but they don't affect behavior in any way whatsoever. Okay. And I'm a guy who grew up with a psychologist in my house. So this is an interesting thing for me to to talk about. Does that make sense or or did I lose you it and It does, Alex
2: but I just feel like this is, I just really don't know anything about video games and it's like such a completely different medium. I, I just didn't, I'm the wrong person to talk to about it. Um, But like a a film, a a film making you feel something is not a film making you do something. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to video games, I just I again, I just really I am I'm not the right person to talk to. I I think that there's not really a, a correlation between the two.
0: Now I'm with you. You're saying there's no correlation. Got it. I was like, well, because I was like, I'm not really asking you about video games. I was using it as a, as a proxy, but you're saying it's not a good proxy for film. And I can I don't think dig so. that. I, okay. I, I, I I get that. All right. We're, <laughs> we're on the same page for sure on that. Yeah. I, but by the way, I appreciate those answers. And um, I love the, the pushback as well. Uh, and getting that candor from, from both of you on that subject is something that I've thought about wanting to ask, but wanted to ask the right people for a really long time. Uh, One of the issues that I would like to solve before I die around independent film is trying to ensure that indie filmmakers get fair market value for their work. And it's really difficult in the current landscape because it's so dominated by streamers who have all the leverage on the business side So, for example, Amazon can pay you, I think, something like six cents per every 90 minutes watched of your film. And so that is that is almost class action lawsuit criminal to me uh, because of the gap between what somebody would get for a regular ticket at a box office versus when they watch it at home. And indie films aren't going to get the same deals as studio films. We know that. And so. I really love the retrospectives you guys do. I think you did one on Hong Sang-soo and really made an event out of his films. And people came and watched his films in, in droves and it gave him a market in which people were gonna buy tickets to watch the film. And it occurred to me that maybe this is the way forward. Maybe this is a way, maybe not the complete way, but a tool in the toolkit or the quiver of an indie filmmaker to, to search for fair market value for their film. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think everyone should sort of adopt sort of the, a branding and marketing push, uh, in their festivals for certain indie filmmakers?
2: Well, I think I'm, I'm sorry to jump in there, but I, I mean, first of all, your question is, is so important about indie filmmakers and market value, especially with the streamers. Um, and uh, I don't have the answers. In fact, I don't even have the numbers, and neither do the filmmakers about exactly, you know, how how often their films are being viewed, um, which is a huge problem. But as far as the Hong Sang Soo example, I will say, and this goes back to also what Knox was saying about similarities between what we do and his last job, which is involved storytelling. Um, what we were able to do with Hong Sang Soo is like tell a story about him and his work. And um, people became more invested. They knew more about his work. They knew that, recognized the style. So when we showed his last film, which was his 24th film, people were already invested in him and in his story and in his style. And I think the big problem out there related to the streamers is just too much choice. And so if what we can do is help and we, we deal with that, too, in choosing what to show in our year-round cinema. And if we can choose things that are, if we can help tell a story of a filmmaker and have a personal investment during the festival, then perhaps during the year when they have a film released, um, our viewers will have more investment in that filmmaker. So that's one possible way. And we're, we, like everyone else, are... Just figuring it out the best way forward with this big problem.
0: Knox, do you have any thoughts on this? Is there a role that festivals can play nationwide, maybe even worldwide, to present indie filmmakers with audiences that are willing to pay full market value for their work?
1: Yeah, I think what Miriam touched on, but the story is really important. You know, I think for us, it's really. One of the things that's been highlighted is people really want that. They want to understand a little bit more. I mean, that's why they come to our film festival, not just our, that's why people go to film festivals. That's why people turn to film organizations because we have, you know, people like Miriam, Kayla Myers, so many different people that help with our programming that help either highlight, tell that story of the filmmaker and or bring, you know, bring films or works that are relevant to um, certain conversations that we're having within our community or as a nation. Um, And I think that really helps highlight the the sort of importance of that and and helps bring those films um, to light. And I think that's the really important role that a programmer and an artistic director can really have um, at an organization or within a film festival.
0: Yeah, it's like we almost need a product that directors can and, and filmmakers can tap into, that allows for them to sort of input things into a space. So let, let's say it was like a web tool, and or software. Maybe it was like SaaS software that you could that you could pay monthly for, but it, it but you were able to send it out through links where you just. Upload pictures of yourself, uh, type in your bio, uh, add rich images, and then all of a sudden you have this wonderful web dossier of who you are. But but it can be used in festivals and other places before your film shows, um, bringing those things together. It's a it's an interesting it's an interesting problem to try to solve. A very difficult problem to solve as well. And so thank you for for your input on that. My mind is spinning now of all the little things you could do and like put together like Legos to make it really work out and get us back to to where we, we want to be. It is, we mentioned at the top of the conversation, sort of what defines 2021. I thought this would be a fun question for you, Miriam, because you live in California, but you commute back and forth to Memphis. And so I'm sure you've been following this recall saga. Is there a film in there somewhere? And what, what do you think would be the POV of, of the California Recall Saga film?
2: Well, maybe, maybe a better film, recall film, would be the previous California Recall in which Arnold Schwarzenegger won. So there you go. There's a built-in film
0: <laughs>
2: and star. You have
0: your star already there. There you go.
2: It, it's a mess. You're thank goodness. In ready to roll yeah <laughs> we do have some good supporting characters in this um in this recall though i mean thank goodness it all worked out but in in la county where i live um angeline who is this local legend who just is famous for wanting to be famous for getting a lot of plastic surgery and putting big billboards with her face. <laughs> she got more votes in the recall than Caitlyn Jenner, which was really interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. It really is. That that Had you not told me that, I don't think I would have guessed it. I would have guessed the other way around.
2: I definitely uh, encourage all your listeners to go look up Angeline. She's, she's quite a character and local legend.
0: Give me her last name again.
2: He doesn't have one, Christopher. Oh, oh she's like Madonna. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> she's like Prince. It's just like I'm Angeline. just Angeline.
2: Yes, Angeline
0: okay. with a Y. Okay, I'm going to Google that <laughs> right, right away, right away. Uh, Miriam, you're an excellent writer. You've written all over the place. I mean, so many uh, areas of. Um, of film, corners of film, we can find your your work, including one of my favorites, Bomb Magazine, which you did a long time ago, but I'm still so happy to find out that you wrote and, and uh, provided your, your intellect to, to that uh, great magazine. Uh, do you see yourself writing and producing a feature film?
2: Oh, wow. Um, wow, that was an unexpected. You're always asking the unexpected, Christopher. um <laughs> Thank you. Wow um uh I don't know I mean i started out uh, uh, i started out in film uh, intending to be a filmmaker I uh, studied filmmaking and then i started teeing for some film history classes and got really interested in film history and writing about film um, but I also think a lot of the work I do now is really informed by You know, that was over 15 years ago and it was a really different world. Um, And it was, um, yeah, it was just a really different world for women filmmakers, for filmmakers of color. It was, um, it just didn't feel like there was a space for, for me to, you know, I felt like I needed to kind of adopt the sort of style and viewpoint of a lot of these famous white dudes at the time. And it felt a little awkward and uncomfortable. And there were just a lot of things. And so in becoming a, a writer and a programmer, a lot of that was to kind of open up that space that I saw that was not quite right. And when I was an aspiring filmmaker, and um, now it's not perfect, but it's, it's better and I'm really glad I had that entry point because I really feel like, you know, I have this understanding of what filmmakers need and how the world needs to change for them. And that's always been my motivation. But um, so there's still a lot of work to do in that space and I'm happy to still do it. But um, I don't know, in answer to your question, never say never.
0: I'm going to keep my ear to the ground on it. And as soon as you're done writing your script, I'll, I want to be maybe the first top 10 people you think about to send it to, to read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would, I would, I would be honored. That would be wonderful. Knox, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career so far? And who did they come from?
1: The two best pieces of advice, um, you know, I think one. I mean, one. It's. Uh, I, hope, I hope this doesn't sound too like preachy, but it did not to me at the time, and it's it tries. I try to always remind myself of this: is just to be as compassionate as possible. Um, you know, I think it's pretty easy to, uh, you know. It, especially this year, you know, just thinking at the very beginning of our conversation, you know, I feel like we're all a little tapped out and compassion is just so necessary with everyone around us at all times. Um, And the second, um, oh geez. um, I feel like I know one of the, one of the items that Miriam will share. So I don't want to, I don't want to take hers away from her, Um, But it's something I'll I'll definitely echo. So hopefully she'll, um, and if she doesn't share it, maybe I'll come back. Um, But the other is just to, um, you know, not be afraid and just get out there and do, it's pretty easy to get in your own way of doing things from time to time because you're afraid of the outcome. Um, I certainly do it. Um, You know, we are most often operating in the unknown and we have to, Uh, take that jump and and plunge ahead sometimes. And when doing that, you can often get stumbled upon some great, great results and some um, fantastic pieces of art too.
0: I love the line and the thought of operating in the unknown. It reminds me of the Sean Lennon lyric, uh, life is mostly what you don't see. And you're right. When you, when you, Live a life of self-expression. It's very difficult to live the mantra, don't be afraid. It's so much easier said than, than done, but it's always rewarding because if you can take the slings and arrows that come at you once you do share that self-expression and you can have some thick skin, you're able to come back even better than, than you, you were before. Miriam, you have an affinity for two men. Charles Grodin and director Les Blank. What sparked your love for these men, and what did they do that uh, set themselves apart in your mind?
2: Um, <laughs> what a funny pair. Do I get to answer my favorite advice too, or or?
0: Yes, I would oh, love that. Okay, yes, please let, do. So
2: let me think about Charles Grodin and Les Blank, and and get back to to that. Um, but for the advice, um, I think like probably the best advice was and i think the 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 i think one that i can't attribute to anyone because so many people have said it and it's so yet somehow it's always hard is just that advice we all know trust your gut and i think it's trust your gut is just so hard because you can overthink things and you can go by experts and experience and um, by 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 you know people who are authorities and certain things and i feel like um, trust your gut is something that I am always, um, emphasizing to people on our screening committee, for instance, it's like, you know, it's like, you're the expert, you're watching this, you're the expert, your views, your experience, like, did you, were you engaged? What did you find it off-putting in terms of, uh, sexism? All of that is correct. Like your view is correct. And I just want to strengthen that in a lot of people on our screening committee and um, with our programmers and something I'm constantly doing, um, trying to remind myself of. So, but when it comes to so many aspects, I think, and when it comes to COVID, that's been another thing, COVID precautions, I've really had to learn to kind of like trust, trust, um, trust my gut on safety, on if something feels like it's not going to be um, like I wouldn't be comfortable, then I wouldn't be comfortable asking our audience to do it. So that's been a big, um, constant reminder. And, and then I think the other one was, which is the one Knox was, um, leaning into something I've shared with him before is that one of the best advice was my grandmother just saying to always write a thank you note. I think that that's easy to forget. Sometimes we're all busy, but it has been probably the thing that has been most helped me in my career and my life. And, and just feeling like a good person, you know, is just making sure to write, um, thank you notes. Um, and, uh, and Knox is great at that. And he's, uh, it's been great to be reminded as, as my grandmother would remind me to always write those thank you notes. Um, yeah yeah that's
0: that's wonderful because, well, both of them are. I had a conversation with a writer about a week ago that was perfectly aligned with trust your gut. because one of the tricks is to know when not to take a note. Like one of the tricks is to know when you really are onto something. I use the example of if Andre 3000 had let his grandmother hear Heya, he probably would have never released it because she would have been like, Oh, that's what is this? You know, or like, let the wrong person be the critiquer of your art. and And then you run with that because you have more sort of faith in someone else's taste than your own as the artist, your own POV. So it's really important to know when not to take a note. And then, I think writing a note is more powerful today than it's ever been because no one's going to do it. They're going to text you. I've heard people on Instagram sort of be upset because people won't take the time to write out the word congratulations. It's like, congrats, 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 congrats. <laughs> so everything is congrats and, and maybe some emoji. So this idea that you would take this stationery and put your ink on it, is so powerful, uh, more powerful than it's ever been, in my opinion. So, thank you both for those answers.
2: To, well, thank, to, thank you for asking. But to be clear, um, I think in this day and age, a thank you note can be an email too. But even that, the sort of gesture of you know saying thank you and why, is like more powerful than sending you know than pressing a like button on something, you know, I think it double
0: tap that text. <laughs>
2: yeah. I think it's like, I think, <laughs> I think it's important to, to make that step. Um, okay. Should I, do you want me to answer you about Grodin and Les Blank, the, the I, odd couple? I would,
0: I, I would love that.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, it's hard to answer. I think they're very different. I mean, Charles Grodin is just, um, you know, and these are two recently deceased absolute geniuses, um, Charles Grodin is a um, just a genius he's so funny he's just I just don't think there's anyone like him and I am not skilled enough thank you for your compliments to my writing but something I'm not skilled enough at is um, articulating the genius of um, just comic genius which is just beyond description and he he just had it so any of his movies are are worth watching and I think it's it sort of um, explains itself in those performances. With Les Blank, he was um, well, golly, he was. Um, he, I think, I, I think in a conversation we had before, I mentioned how he um, he was a filmmaker who um, who uh, he was um, he was interested in in documentary filmmaking and sort of anthropological. Um, filmmaking but he wasn't interested in having um being the you know the sort of in filming the other he was interested in filming his own culture and for him that ended up being the south and music and food and the way all of that is uh the way culture is expressed in music and food and i always found his point of view of like filming his own culture rather than you know objectifying it other was so wonderful and he was just he was just he was just cool he was just an old school kind of bohemian he used to sell he's so independent he would just be selling his own merch at all of his screenings and he was um really fun to cook with and he was just—he's an old-school Bohemian. Then when he died, I just felt like that was sort of the end of a certain era. And I felt mm-hmm. that even more so with, um, or just as much with Melvin Van Peebles' re- recent passing, who was oh, yeah, another that
0: last week, I think. Yep.
2: Yeah, just a couple of days ago, and he was another filmmaker I knew—I didn't know as well as Les Blank, but I was honored to have gotten to have met. And um, another just like never be another like him it's just a, such a oh, he lived 10 lives in one and was just so cool and had so much fun in every moment and i just feel like there's a certain um uh i don't know they don't make him like that anymore and i wonder who will who uh it's um i hope they do though um but i will say this is another um you another uh breaking news on your show is that we are doing um we're showing a couple of films in um in honor of of melvin van peoples at the festival this year and we just oh, added those great. screenings yeah
0: that's wonderful that's wonderful that that's uh that's going to be great that's going to be ex- super exciting and um you know, i think of i don't know if anybody's going to replace melvin van peoples or be like him in the future i, I think right now we're holding on to quincy Jones and he seems to be in that, in that world, but on the music side as somebody that's like, that guy's not going to come back around again, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so we gotta, we gotta hold on to him uh, while we, while we can uh, just to put a bow on that question and answer, is there a definitive or like, if you had to just choose one Charles Grodin performance, or movie for everyone to watch that's listening, what, what would it be?
2: Um, I, I, I honestly couldn't choose one. He is so good in everything. I mean, he's, he's, um, but I would say one of my favorite, like, um, well, okay. I'll say, I'll just say two. And they're both by one of my favorite filmmakers, Elaine May, I would say, Mm -hmm. um, he's really amazing in the heartbreak kid, which is hard to see. Unfortunately, um, and he's also really brilliant in a supporting role in Ishtar, a film mm-hmm. I have a deep affinity for, and, um, but he's, he's really good in everything. He's, um, uh, there's really not a bad performance of his. And I was happy to have just at the urging of some of my colleagues just recently saw Clifford for the first time, which he's also brilliant. Mm. So <laughs> you just can't go wrong with Charles Grodin, I think.
0: Love it. Knox, what are your uh, future plans for the growth of Indie Memphis? I
1: think, you know, really for us, one of the areas that I'm excited to really dig into is, and Miriam touched on this earlier in the conversation, kind of around the the, the question you had around, around streaming and, and supporting indie filmmakers, is really the storytelling. Um, you know, I think we've done an exceptional job of getting into the stories around our films, the stories of our filmmakers and, and, but would love to see us continue to grow in that area and continue to, um, really just, um, talk about how these, you know, bring experts in and, and Miriam kind of alludes to it a little bit at the very beginning too, with the, the discussion of the podcast. Um, but just really, um continue driving home the the story elements of of our filmmakers and the films that they that they create. You know, another area of focus for us is our youth program. Um, we just had our Indy Memphis uh, Youth Film Festival this past weekend. Um, watching young students win awards for their creative works was just the most genuine and rewarding thing. Um, you know, as as a as a Memphian, um, I was of course familiar with the film festival, been a supporter of their organization, but never really got to see the youth program up close. Um, and getting that opportunity and getting to to meet some of our rising filmmakers was just incredible. Um, and so, really want to see us, you know, continue to find ways to to support. Um, students and, and, you know, again, providing them with that metaphorical megaphone. They have such interesting and unique perspectives and such incredible stories to tell and such an eye for things. And I want to be able to support that and, and be able to lend them the tools that they need, you know, add tools to their existing toolkits to be able to, to develop into the filmmaking stars that we know they can be. That is wonderful.
0: And you guys have been so wonderful with your time. I, if you could see my desk right now, I have probably 10 pages of notes. <laughs> that I could go into, I could probably talk to you guys for another three hours, but I won't do that. Uh, I know you guys have lives and, uh, things to do work. Uh, just a few more questions. Uh, Miriam, in your opinion, what are the top three online resources that our audience can go to to educate themselves on the history of film if they wanted to get into that?
2: Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, Okay. Um, uh, Let's see. Off the top of my head, the first thing that comes to mind is the, um, the Chicago Reader has if someone is interested especially in becoming a film critic or a film programmer because you have to write about films in that role um the chicago reader has these old film capsules that are the best online resource and you can read um short reviews of films by um, jonathan rosenbaum and dave kerr and they, uh, lots of others and it is just the secret wonderful not so secret but wonderful resource for reading about any film um i also i'm a big proponent of um it's not exactly online you actually need cable for it but um uh, the my favorite streaming app is watch TCM um, I'm a big fan of TCM and of watching old movies and you know I feel like, especially when you're watching really simple movies from the thirties, not simple, but they're really kind of streamlined. There's so much you can learn about film technique through these older films and storytelling. So I'm a big proponent of, uh, of watch TCM. Honestly, if you don't have TCM, a lot of these films are on YouTube. (laughs) I shouldn't Mm -hmm. say that because they're mostly probably illegal, but, um, I definitely recommend finding old films, however you can, whether, it's on TCM or YouTube or whoever else. And then what's the third online resource? Um, let's see. What do I learn online? I don't know. I'm going to sound really old school, but um, I would just say um, for my third my third thing I would just say a library card. (laughs) I mean, that's not online at all, but I think just like reading books on film. is really, is, is really important. And, um, and you can read books about, and, you know, you can get a lot of these books online through like Libby and through your library card, through, um, getting, um, uh, eBooks and it's a way to not invest too much money and just, um, I think it's really important to, to again read about the history of film. I feel like when you do that, um, there's so much, much um, learning you can skip, and you can also know a huge part of knowing about the history of film is just uh, kind of checking your own ego too, and knowing your own place in like the history of film. That so much has come before and will come afterwards, and what you can do within that world that is unique and special and maybe hasn't been said before and using the skills of so many people before you.
0: Yeah. A fun little guide I found to cities is, is I'd say the following three, which are kind of comical and, and not really serious, but you know, you have a good city. If it has a great library, if it has a great film festival or just any film festival, maybe. And if there's lots of Teslas. <laughs> so, like, those three things. Are we seeing Teslas? Is the library fantastic? And is there some film festival that like represents the creatives and, and their self-expression? So I really appreciate those answers. I have them written down here for the audience. That's the Chicago Reader Watch TMC, which I have on my Apple TV and go get yourself a library card it is not antiquated at all go get you one and it will pay off big time for you uh Knox, miriam i'll start with you Knox, though uh where can we find you on social media or on the internet and do you want to pitch indie memphis one more time
1: yeah <laughs> i'm going to pitch indie memphis hard here because i am uh not uh very active on social media uh, Uh, so I'll say make sure to follow us on uh, Indie Memphis on Facebook and on Twitter um, and Instagram. We're at Indie Memphis on all of those outlets. Um, So be sure to, to come along on our journey, especially um, for news on, on any, um, on the film festival, but on any upcoming series that we're going to have after the festival. And throughout the year, we do a lot um, beyond the festival, the, you know, it's amazing that with a team of um, five full-time, of course, we're, we're not just limited to, to just that immediate team, but um, with, with what we're able to accomplish throughout the year, it's been incredible seeing all the work that Miriam, Joseph, Macon, Kayla, you know, Bridget, who, who just left us. And, you know, amazing to see all the work that goes into this organization over the, the course of the year. So be sure to follow us on those social channels. Miriam?
2: Um, I, yeah, I agree with what we are. The person who does our social is a genius, Macon Wilson. So you should definitely follow all of the Indie Memphis, um, uh, all the Indie Memphis channels for occasional real surprises. Um, <laughs> she's really, really can be really fun and quirky with some of our social media. And then if anyone wants to find me, I'm on, um, I guess, Twitter at Miriam Bale now.
0: Perfect. And you are, as I mentioned earlier, a wonderful follow and very active. So everyone go out and do that. And we'll end on this. If if you had the power, if each of you had the power to put a protagonist of your choice and an antagonist of your choice in any film, who would they be?
1: A long pause after this question as I'm sitting here <laughs> running through all the endless possibilities right now. Um, Miriam, you, you want to take a first oh, stab not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, anytime. <laughs> well, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just use the example I already use. I'll say Angeline for the protagonist and Caitlyn Jenner for the antagonist.
1: what a movie (laughs) oh no that's so good how am i gonna follow this up? oh boy um oh geez um oh my goodness i'm trying to i'm trying to sit here and think of like favorite movies um of mine and who i would want to pick um oh my goodness um I'm going to, you know, uh, maybe. Yeah, it's really tough. You know, I'll say, um, let me, I'll pick, um, Mona from Vagabond as my protagonist. Mm -hmm. Who do I want to mix in with, with as a protagonist or an antagonist here? Oh my goodness. I don't know. You know, my other favorite movie, Spirit of the Beehive, which doesn't really have an antagonist other than sort of the, I guess maybe you could say, uh, the film um, itself. Um, So maybe I'll just, uh, I'll put Mona... In the, in the surroundings of Spirit of the Beehive. We'll make it, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that.
2: I love that answer.
0: That's right, you sent me that note before Knox to watch Spirit of the Beehive. So I have got to consume that. I have to watch that ASAP. I really appreciate you guys indulging me and I appreciate this conversation. It was so much fun. I knew I was gonna learn a lot, but I learned even more than I thought. I'm super excited for any Memphis and I'm so proud of what you guys are doing for the independent filmmaking community. You really are making a difference. So thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you, Christopher. Looking forward to seeing you at the festival.
0: I'll be there with bells on. No, (laughs) not literally. (laughs) Talk soon, guys. Be good. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects and indie creatives please visit our website at www.banzai.film if you haven't already you can join our podcast community on apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for make it bonsai creative and the show will pop right up you now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast if you love make it and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore bonsai creative and on Facebook by searching for bonsai creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris on Twitter, at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings, from keynotes and panels, to pitch readiness assessments, and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, Be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.